only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding This morning's uh, reading brings us back to Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Um, as always, you can find this in the Blue Bible there in front of you on page 947, Romans chapter 11, verse 25 is appropriately titled, The Mystery of Israel's Salvation. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways the infallible Word of God. In this uh, section, there is a lot of uh, interpretive difference in the first part of this. And so I've written a paper uh, that, if you're interested at all, uh, it's in the back uh, on your way out. We just don't have time to deal with all those views. I'm just going to tell you what I think uh, the interpretation is. And I think it's exciting and glorious uh, what Paul teaches here. Uh, but that's just for your, if you want to do further study on this passage. Uh, let's, let's pray. Let's ask God to bless us. Oh, Lord, uh, we come to your word and we pray for your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes. Pray for your spirit to give us wisdom. We pray, O Lord, that we will come into new adoration of this glorious God who has uh, revealed himself in such amazing ways and how he saves his people uh, throughout the world, Jew and Gentile. Nothing can stop your sovereign mercy. We praise you, O great God. May we come to all the more adore your mercy this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. The uh, title of our sermon is Adore Our Merciful God. You know, adoration is good for you. 
Psalm 147 begins, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Praise goes down good in the human soul. It is good to the last drop. There's nothing better for your whole being than heartfelt praise. And hopefully, we will get some healing rays this morning as we explore and adore the mercy of God that's set forth here. Uh, Now, you see in your outline, we first will look at the expanse of His mercy in verses 25 through 29. Now, as he begins this verse, he uses the term mystery. Now, by mystery, he doesn't mean something that's dark and mysterious and hard to understand. Mystery in Paul means God's profound purpose that was hidden in the Old Testament period, but now is wide openly revealed in the time of the New Testament. You can learn more about that in the paper. Oh, what a dig, huh? Uh, I think it's on page 43 of that paper. No, it's just six pages altogether, but... Uh, Paul is declaring this mystery, he says, to keep his hearers from being wise in their own sight, from being too big for their spiritual britches, so to speak. He continues then his warnings in the passage before against Gentile arrogance, verse 18, and Gentile pride in verse 20, that they have toward the Jews. And in this passage, he is saying, don't look down on the Jews. God is not through with them as a people. You should humble yourself. The mystery that Paul is declaring then is the great change that is coming in Israel's response to the gospel. Now, he says, there's this period of a partial hardening in which most of Israel refuses the gospel and only a remnant is saved, as he said earlier in this chapter, in verses 5 and 7. But that remnant uh, condition lasts only until what he calls here the fullness of the Gentiles. And in connection with that fullness, there will come a time when all Israel will be saved. Now, Paul doesn't mean every single person. It's like when we say the whole city turned out for a parade or an event. He means, though, that the greater part of Israel will be saved. Now, most of Israel, now, most of Israel is refusing the gospel, but there's coming an event, the fullness of the Gentiles, when most of Israel will receive the gospel and be saved. Now, what does this fullness of the Gentiles mean then? As always, a primary rule with Scripture is interpret Scripture with Scripture. And in the context of chapter 11, Paul uses this term, the same term fullness in verse 12. Now there Paul writes... If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion, that's the word fullness, mean? Okay, And and a sister verse saying basically the same thing, if their rejection, verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, he's talking about Israel here, but he does use this word fullness. In these two verses, Paul describes Israel's present unbelief 
as their trespass and failure and rejection. Okay? In those two verses. But he says there's coming a time when Israel as a whole will not be marked by rejection, but by acceptance. Not only a small portion will believe, uh, not only a small portion will believe, but then a large portion will believe. And that's what he calls Israelites fullness in verse 12. So if we apply this meaning of fullness to our phrase in verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles, it means a spreading of the gospel and a response to the gospel among the Gentiles nation, Gentile nations that will be so great and extensive that it will be marked by fullness. And that's exciting. That's encouraging that a time of fullness is coming, a time of great response to the gospel. And he says, as the Gentiles are brought in, God will graciously do a great work among the Jews as well. Because he says, in this way, verse 26, in this way of the fullness of Gentiles, so all Israel will be saved. And then we learn wonderfully in verses 12 and 15 that there is a turnaround and when this fullness of the, gen, of the Jews comes in, this acceptance of, of Christ, it will in turn mean greater riches for the world. So there is this symbiotic relationship and interdependence. Because of grace in one group, grace comes to another and because of grace to that group, grace reciprocates to the original John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, writes this, Keep in mind the mutual interaction for the increase of blessing between Jew and Gentile. By the fullness of the Gentiles, Israel is restored, verse 25, and by the restoration of Israel, the Gentiles are incomparably enriched, verses 12 and 15. You see, uh, there's this... Time of hardening and remnant with the Jews until this great outbreak occurs among the Gentiles. And in the midst of this, Israel is brought in large numbers. And that in turn brings about even greater riches among the Gentile world. Now, we don't know what God regards as the fullness of the Gentiles. We don't know how long the process will take. We don't know when it will begin, how it will progress, how long the period would be. It could span many generations. And during those generations, the Jews are brought in in greater and greater numbers that even further spurs this fullness of the Gentiles. Because it is in the way of this fullness, in connection with this fullness, that all Israel will be saved. And then we read with Paul, their acceptance will be life from the dead for the world. I think this is a a kind of proverbial, uh, metaphorical way to say it will mean amazing life that breaks out in the world. Now, interestingly, our own larger catechism, question 191, I know most of you have memorized that, Asks, uh, uh, this is the section on the Lord's Prayer, and it asks, What do we pray for in the second petition, Thy kingdom come? And among the petitions, it lists these. We pray for the gospel to be propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. It's in our catechism. 
to pray for the Jews to be brought, to pray for this fullness of the Gentiles. And as Ian Murray points out in his excellent book, The Puritan Hope, the Reformation brought in great expectation of what God would do among the nations of the earth and what God would do among the Jews themselves. In fact, we could say that 1,200 years of, quote, Christian prejudice against the Jews fell away among the Reformed countries because of the impact of God's Word upon His people. Uh, I will give only one example. Excuse me, left my book back here. This is from Samuel Rutherford. This is a letter he wrote, April 22nd, 1635. Listen to what he says. Oh, to see the sight next to Christ coming in the clouds, the most joyful. What is this going to be? Our elder brethren, the Jews and Christ, fall upon one another's necks and kiss each other. That's a beautiful statement of it, isn't it? Our elder brethren, the Jews and Christ, fall upon one another's necks and kiss each other. They have been long asunder. They will be kind to one another when they meet. Oh, day, oh, long for and lovely day dawn. Oh, sweet Jesus, let me see that sight, which will be as life from the dead. Quoting verse 15. Thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. And that theology was built on this passage in Romans 11. And then it's fascinating that Paul goes on in verse 26 to quote this passage in Isaiah 59 and Jeremiah 31, combining them together about the new covenant. Because we know from Hebrews 8 that the new covenant certainly applies to the church as a whole. That's standard teaching in, in the Scripture. And they, the, the, these, this passage talks about how God, this deliverer will come and He'll pour out grace upon His people, taking away their sins, banishing ungodliness. But in this quote, Paul is applying it specifically to this incoming of the Jews. So that the new covenant, yes, it has this wonderful application to the gathering in of God's church. And in, and in part of that gathering is a reference to the special gathering in, the powerful gathering in of the Jews themselves. So that they, not as a separate program somewhere down the line, and I'll talk about that some in, in the paper, but, but as a part of being folded into the Christian church itself, being folded in to the Christian church uh, worldwide. And Paul has shown again and again how aware he is of these contexts when he quotes the Old Testament. And just listen to the beauty of what follows immediately in this quote in Isaiah 59. Here's, that's the last verse in 59 and now Isaiah 60. And, and, and Paul would apply this and say this applies to the church, but it applies in this special way as well to the Jews one day. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. It sure seems to fit 
Paul's teaching in 12 and uh, 15 here that their incoming, their acceptance, their fullness will mean uh, a life from the dead for the world. And so this is uh, the great teaching here of Paul of what uh, we can hope for and pray for and expect in the future. He goes on to say in verse 28 that though they are enemies to the gospel, as a whole they have rejected the gospel, they are still God's beloved people because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of the forefathers. He said a similar thing back in verse 16 when he said, If the root is holy, so are the branches. The root we said there, the patriarchs. Okay, If the root is holy, then the branches, the present day Israel is holy. They're still set apart for God's purpose of mercy. That's the point. If the root was set apart for God's mercy... The the branches are set apart and there's a purpose that God still has to show mercy to those branches. And so God's gifts, as he says here in verse 29, listed in the first part of chapter 9, if you want to refer to that, these great gifts are, are irrevocable. This calling cannot be turned back even by their sin. It is indeed, as we have, have sung the hymn, most of us, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace that overcomes even the disobedience of Israel against Jesus himself that finally brings so many Jews to himself because God is a merciful God. Well, he he explores then a bit. uh, And by the way, don't worry, the other points aren't that long. Um, You're already saying, good night, when are we going to... Verses 30 and 31 talk about this interworking of mercy. And this is how it worked out. You Gentiles were one time, at one time disobedient. He says something similar in Ephesians 2 and kind of enlarges uh, on this uh, situation. He says to Gentiles in Ephesians 2, You were at that time, before the coming of Christ, separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so it's easy to see you Gentiles were disobedient. But he says the Jews were disobedient as well. And that disobedience, though, was actually used by God to bring riches to the world, as he says earlier in this chapter. So that uh, those who were not strangers outwardly to the covenants were, were even disobedient. Yet God in His sovereignty who works all things for good used their disobedience to bring mercy to you Gentiles. So that God can and does use any and every circumstance to accomplish the heartbeat of His purpose in this world, which is to get glory by showing mercy. And so even in their disobedience, He says, you were shown mercy. And now the situation is, you have been shown mercy, and because of that mercy, these Jews who are presently disobedient will be drawn and shown mercy themselves. So he's basically saying what he said earlier, that through their disobedience, mercy flowed to you, but now because of the mercy shown you, there is going to be mercy for them as well. 
So mercy overcomes disobedience in these verses, right? In fact, verses 30 through 32, there are four times he mentions disobedience, four times he mentions mercy. And the last word in verse 31 in the original is mercy. And the last word in, the, in verse 32 is mercy. And this brings to mind the, the passage in Romans 9 where he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, verse 15. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this passage just underscores that, doesn't it? Even the Disobedience everywhere. Disobedience everywhere. And you think, well, what's the result? Only judgment. No. Mercy. 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 In the midst of disobedience. What a more striking statement could be made about the character of mercy. It doesn't depend on how good you've been or could be or are. has nothing to do with that. It always meets what? It meets disobedience. That's what mercy meets. Every time. And so it brings us to that third point in your outline the driving force of His mercy. See, everything heads to that. We used to play with these little animals that made little craters and actually saw a few times an ant fall into the crater. It was not a pretty picture at the bottom of the crater because these big jaws are there, you know, to, to take in that. But God has a crater and at the bottom of that crater is mercy. Everything is tipped that way. Even disobedience. Even disobedience is tipped. In fact, the whole point of creating uh, and and convicting people of disobedience and shutting them up to disobedience is not ultimately so they'll just feel guilty, you know, and and, and run from God. That's not the point of it. He shuts them up in disobedience so that He might show them mercy. It's all, it's the driving force of His mercy, bringing us to that point where we can have this incredible joy at receiving mercy. Interesting that our first question we ask for those who are professing their faith in Christ is, do you see yourselves as sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, except for or save in His sovereign mercy. It's like somebody had been reading Romans 11.32 or this whole passage. I know a question. Here you go. No one is accepted by God because he or she is good or because he or she is better than someone else, because he or she scored high enough on some moral scale. God shuts down that operation altogether, he says in verse 32. We are all, every single one of us, no matter our station in life, no matter our economic standing, no matter our job, no matter our family, no matter whether we're born into a Christian family or an atheist family, all of us are shut up to recognize our grievous sin against God, our rebellion against God, and that our only hope is mercy. All of us. And however bad this news seems, it is the best news in the world. (laughs) Because this mercy is available to all. 
the word is there, isn't it? That he might have mercy on all. And this reflects back to chapter 10, verse 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the Lord uh, will, will be saved. And so, these riches of mercy are open to anyone who will believe You can admit your failure in sin. You don't have to hide. God knows you to the bottom of your being and He knows the extent of your sin infinitely more than you do and He addresses you and says, come under the refuge of my mercy. And you'll never surprise Him. Right? Five years into it and you discover some part of your sinfulness. It won't surprise God. Because it was mercy from the beginning knowing what you would find out about yourself five years later. It's mercy. It's only mercy. He's given His Son to die in the place of sinners, to bear the punishment they deserve. So for anyone who trusts in Him, your sins are taken away. He bore them in His body on the cross, as Peter says. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting that it's only in tasting His mercy that you in turn become increasingly increasingly a merciful person. This is where true patience and forbearance and kindness is born in the experience of His grace and forgiveness and mercy. It enables you more and more to be free from the lethal, sterile, stinking commitment to yourself and to walk in this increasing wholeness and satisfaction of love. And so this mercy transforms individuals and families and communities. It's the greatest and in one sense the only power for good in the world is this mercy. Yahweh said to Moses as we saw, this is who I am. This is my essence. You asked me to show you my glory. I am the God of mercy. Now, we may think all this talk about Jews and Gentiles is a little boring and a little tedious, but, God, but Paul breaks out into praise at the end of it. Breaks out into praise. Probably riches here refers to riches of mercy. He talks about his knowledge and his wisdom. How God works out his gracious purpose in the face of human sin deserves our praise. That is what we must focus on in the midst of suffering. God is working out His glorious purpose with unlimited wisdom and knowledge and the riches of His mercy run on the heels and in the midst of all suffering and tragedy that occurs in this world. He, He is bringing about His purpose of mercy even when it looks entirely like he couldn't be. And then he closes with this statement of the sovereignty of God's mercy. You know, God doesn't have a board of directors that he sits down with and says, you know, I've got a few problems here. I need some help in figuring out what to do. He has no counselors. This is similar to Job, isn't it? Where were you? Where was anybody to to lend me wisdom and power and some kind of help when I made the whole world and everything in it? Where were you when I made the ostrich? Where were you when I made Leviathan? Where were you when I made the horse? And this is the same thing. 
God doesn't receive from anyone, but He gives to all. He ends in this glorious final statement that He is the source of everything. He is the one who sustains everything, and He is the goal of everything. It shows that God is the absolute center of all things and should be the absolute center of your life. This should be a statement of of how you trust I draw everything from Him. I depend upon Him for everything. I do everything for Him. That's the the reality to which we want to move. (laughs) That's the truth. That's that's the glory. That's when we become the most noble and expansive human beings we can be when we live with that confession, when we live out that confession in our lives. May we give Him this glory. May it enrich us every hour of every day. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank You and praise You for this mighty work that You are doing in the earth. We praise You, Lord, that nothing can stop You and that You are bringing it about in the most perfect way, even though to us it looks bizarre and capricious and dark. We thank you, Lord, that you are unmoved. You are this God who shows mercy to whomever he will. And Lord, even the disobedience of the nations, even the blasphemy and idolatry and falsehood and darkness of the nations is no barrier to the sovereign mercy of God that will break in so that peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation will stand before your throne and give you glory. Oh, Lord, bless us to hope, to pray, to work, to give, to go for that day, both in our lifetime and however many lifetimes it may be. Oh, bless the church that its passion will be the glory of God throughout the whole earth. In Jesus' name we pray. A pleasing scene clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through shades of night and chase my fears away won't you chase my fears away